and bring a Gentile to, to be a Christian, what you first had to do was essentially to make a Gentile a Jew. And that in order to be a Christian, you first had to adopt Judaism. You had to adopt the law. You had to be circumcised. You had to take everything that the Old Testament talked about in terms of the law, in terms of the Ten Commandments, in terms of all the ceremonial issues. All of that had to be engrafted on to a person, to a Gentile, before they could be a Christian. Well, this isn't the gospel that Paul was preaching or Barnabas was preaching. And so this became a significant issue. And so they went down to the Jerusalem church and they had one of the great church conferences, the first church conference, and we talked about what it must have been like in that conference. When all these people got together, the Judaizers, those committed to the law, and those people who were not, who wanted to operate by the doctrine of grace. And they got together, and this discussion must have gone on for hours until finally Peter spoke up. And Peter gave one of the great speeches that you'll see uh, in the New Testament in which he defends the gospel of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of grace and talks about what happened, how God spoke to him. Three times he reminded them. When they attacked him, when he came back after bringing the gospel to Cornelius and his house, how that very church, the same Judaizers, attacked him. How could you eat with Gentiles? You remember that? We studied that about a month ago. How could you eat with Gentiles? And how he told them about the vision that God gave him. Three times the cloth came down with all those unclean things that a Jew would call unclean. All those animals, and God said, eat. And he said, no, I cannot. I am a Jew. And our brother Peter, it's always as if he needs to get the message not once, not twice, but three times. Have you noticed that? Three times the tablecloth had to come down. It is amazing. It's just astonishing. Can you imagine you're, you're having a vision from God and basically you're arguing? You know, I mean, you're arguing with God because that's how strong the Jewish tradition was. You didn't believe it was a direct witness to you. Like, how can this be? I know what the law is. I cannot eat these unclean things. I cannot eat food that's contaminated by blood. I cannot eat that. I cannot eat food that's been strangled. I cannot do that. And, and yet God is saying what I have created is not unclean. What I have created is not unclean. And so shortly thereafter, Cornelius sends for him and he comes to the house and there he, there he is and he realizes this was what it's about, Cornelius. And so he's, he's explaining this to the church again in the Jerusalem council. He's laying it out as a defense and saying, and then I realized when they received the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit descended on the house and, and Cornelius' entire family and friends, every single person in that house received the Holy Spirit as Peter sat there and told them, didn't even finish his sermon, and the Holy Spirit descended, and he said, and I realized that what God gave them, he gave us, that they have the same gift, so that God was no respecter of persons. There's no such thing as ethnic bias for God. There's no such thing as racial bias for God. There's no such thing as cultural bias for God. God is colorblind. 
This was a shock to this church because this church was predominantly Jewish, predominantly. And so we stand there and we see this all coming to a head. And so now after this defense takes place, James, the half-brother of Jesus, the man who would not be a committed Christian until after Jesus was crucified, a man who was raised with him in the very house, still would not respect him as the, as the Messiah. Only after he was crucified did James, his own half-brother, come to the gospel. And yet you see James now has become a leader in this church. And so James stands up and delivers a judgment. And let's continue from there at that point. Verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Oh, my. He delivers this as a judgment. And so let's discuss why he gave this determination. What was the background as to why he focused on these things? Some of these things don't seem to be very critical to us, and yet if you look back at the context of when it took place and how it took place, you'll understand that. First of all, food polluted by idols. What was happening here is that the Gentiles, many of them, were still practicing idol worship. In fact, I read to you a verse from Revelations from the church of Pergamos when, when uh, the Lord wrote the letters to the seven churches and one of the churches was Pergamos and what did he said, I have somewhat against thee that you are still worshiping Balaam. Oh, God, this is the church. This is the church. Yes, it's the church. And when people say to you, oh, I wish we were like the early church. I wish we could go back to the early church. So one of the things that the early church did not have was the Bible. Remember that. They did not have the Bible. They did not have the continuous word of God the way you have it today, bound together in one place so you can study it. They did not have this. And so there were people there in the early church, Gentiles, who were going to these ceremonies where there were idols. And some of them, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them were getting involved in a careless, reckless way. You know how, how your faith gets eroded. And we're getting comfortable with, these, with this idol worship. And then we're taking food from those ceremonies and eating it. Well, it wasn't necessarily just the point of eating the food. The point was they were there in the first place. They were there. They were part of something that they should not have been a part of. If you're in this world with the Lord, you can't be in that world with, with the world. And that's what was going on. And so the first decree that was established is, you shall not eat food polluted by idols. The second decree, you shall abstain from sexual immorality. What is this about? Brother, this is the church you're talking about. Oh, what kind of message is this to the church? Sexual immorality. Well, for folks, this is the first century church. 
A big part of it had come out of Corinth. Corinth was one of the most sinful cities uh, in the world. Every possible sexual deviation that you could imagine was being practiced in Corinth. And some of those things, unfortunately, had still affected the early Christian church and Gentiles. And so some of them were still practicing sexual immorality. Um, I wish I could say that we don't have to worry about those issues today. Put it to God. Put it to God. You wonder sometimes how many of us, if people saw us in the world, how many of them of us would truly be distinguished by our walk. The people know that we're different when they see our walk. Or does it come on Monday morning after we leave church on Sunday, we put on our regular weekday clothes, and we can go and be whoever we need to be with the friends that we hang with. You can't be in two different worlds. You can't be in two different worlds. You don't answer to me. I don't answer to you. We answer to God. And then he says, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. Brother John, what is the big deal? The meat of strangled animals and from blood. Why are you making such a big deal about this? Well, here's the big deal. The big deal is that the early church, pretty much every service had communion. And in every service with communion, these were love feasts. They were like the first potluck dinners. <laughs> really. And what was happening is that the church would gather, it would celebrate the Lord's Supper, and they would then stay together for hours. And they would eat. And they would, they would really celebrate and be together and have a relationship of, of love. But the point was this, that this was so abhorrent to a Jew, still, the idea of blood, of eating blood, that, the, that, the, that their culture had been so strictly forbidden in that regard, that God had been so clear about that, that they could never get over it. And God recognized, the Lord recognized, that if, in fact, this church was going to be able to celebrate together, things like Lord's Supper and come together as a church, there would be no way. There'd be no way a Jew and a Gentile could sit together while I'm observing a kosher meal, and next to me is somebody eating blood. It cannot happen. And so even though it really becomes a cultural issue at that point, it was so significant an issue in terms of the unity of the church and being able to keep the church together, that they made this a pronouncement. And uh, one of the things that, when you understand the severity of this and how they looked at it, open your Bible, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Turn to verse 53. These are the words of Jesus. And Jesus effectively is laying out the doctrine of who he is and what we need to be to be part of the kingdom, to be engrafted on the body of the Lord. Look what Jesus says here. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Oh my, can you imagine if you were a Jew in the first century and you heard that after what I've just laid out to you? Can you imagine the seismic repercussions of this? Drink my blood? Drink my blood? You can understand how God was basically destroying the old ways. He could do it in no more dramatic a way than to say, drink my blood. Spiritually, spiritually, this is an entirely new paradigm. All the things that have gone before are prelude. No law ever saved a man. No adherence to the law ever gave a person salvation. Only one way to get salvation, that is through justification by faith through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. That plus nothing else. And I can't impress that upon you enough. I can't repeat that enough to you, how important this is and how critical this is to the gospel so that you understand this. And why what's going to happen now and what we're going to study is a very sad uh, commentary. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Paul is going to speak to us. Galatians right after 2 Corinthians. I tell you that because I need that myself. They too have warts. Peter. Verse 11. Peter makes a trip to Antioch. This is about within two years of the Jerusalem conference. This is within two years of him getting up and giving one of the great defenses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where he defends to the church against those Judaizers who wanted to change the church. Who wanted to bring it, to the, wanted to bring it back to the uh, a church of the law. We're in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I, and this is Paul, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you see this moment? Peter, so wrong that I publicly call him out to his face, not in private, but I call him out to his face. Can you just see this incredible, poignant moment? Before certain men came from James, meaning James the brother of John, before they came down from the Jerusalem church, before these men arrived in Antioch, Peter, he used to eat with the Gentiles. He was there with them on a regular basis, being part of them, part of their community, fully involved. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Oh, Brother John, what are you saying? Peter, 
our pillar, our spokesman, the person who understands, who walked with Jesus. You walked on water. You gave that defense. What happened? Well, my pals came down from the Jerusalem church, and I didn't want them to see that I hung around with Gentiles. I know what I said. I know what I said, but I, I didn't want them to see me do this. So, you were willing to erode the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's that simple. You were willing to erode the gospel of Jesus because you didn't want your pals from the Jerusalem church to see you hanging out with Gentiles. Now, before we start picking up stones, okay? All right, before I put the stone down for a moment, put it down because the point I have to ask you is this. You know all your neighbors know who you are. You go to that church. That's got 7,000 people in that church. You people are strict. You're strict. I know what you stand for. In fact, I see you leave here Sunday morning. Some of you leave your house at 8 o'clock in the morning. You don't get back until 1. <laughs> then you're only home for a couple hours, and you're going back to church again. <laughs> in fact, you're at church all the time. But you know, sometimes I see you do things that aren't like church people. I see sometimes how you talk. I see you playing golf. I watch you. <laughs> Sometimes I saw how you talk to your wife. I see you outside. I see how you handle yourself. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Are you ready to hoist that stone? Are you ready to hoist that stone? The point is, you see the damage that we do to the gospel of Jesus. We can have all the beautiful words in the world. We can all mouth the platitudes of the gospel. And as my father used to say, he said, we need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And sometime we need to use words. Amen. Sometime we need to use words. Because the real gospel of Jesus is preached with your life. So here's Peter with all the good that he did with all of the great stance that he took, and by the way, this man is a giant. Let me, not, let me be the first. I mean, when it came time to be crucified and martyred, he said, Lord, I'm not worthy to be crucified with my head up like you. I have to be crucified with my head down. So the point of this is not to criticize him. This is not meant as a criticism. God gives us this not as a criticism of the men, but as an example to us. To us, how kind of life are we living? What are we living? They too have warts. You too have warts. But through the grace of Jesus Christ, you have the strength to address these issues. And let's continue and see what happened. Because this was a damaging event. This was a damaging event. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Do you realize how serious this is? You see how this sin is? You see how Satan works? Some little 
innocuous thing. Oh, it's not that big a deal. We all know what he said. He, he understands the guy. He just wants to beat with his pals. He doesn't want to hang around with the Gentiles now. He'll go. When they leave here, he'll go back to them. But you see the evil that's perpetuated when you sell the gospel out? Do you see what happens? You, then, you who God looks to as a leader, you who God has given a ministry, you not only erode your gift, your ministry, but you take people with you. He took Barnabas. Oh, my. Barnabas, his fellow missionary, he took him too. Yeah, he took Barnabas, and they took a bunch of other Jews with them. Think about what this could have been doing to this church. This church could have been split in half. Really, this church could have been split in half. You want to talk about divisiveness? This is divisiveness. Do you see what happens? How Satan gets in and some innocuous thing grows like a cancer and it gets worse and worse. But I have to, I have to give our brother Paul credit. He called him out under the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure this wasn't easy. He called him out. It's not easy to call somebody out like this. It's got to be done in love. You do it in love. And, and continuing on in verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to know Jewish customs? You see how Paul does this? This is perfect Pauline rhetoric. He takes it and turns it on its, on its head. Well, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. When you're up here, you do everything that you have to do, fully cultured in terms of being with the Gentiles. But now, you want the Gentiles to be Jews. Why is that? Well, of course, there is no defense. There is no defense. And then he continues. Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Underline that, put an asterisk next to it, put an arrow next to it, and I will tell you this, this is the first time in the history of the New Testament that you will see the word justified. And justified is one of the single most important words in our lexicon. Justified. Justified is not a process. Justified is an immediate act of God. Justified is not a pardon. When you get pardoned, you still have a criminal record. When you are justified by Jesus Christ and you are engrafted onto the body of their Lord in that moment, in that moment through the grace of God, you are righteous. God declares you righteous. You have the righteousness of Jesus. Now, brother, am I saying you're righteous? No. No. You are not truly righteous. But in God's eyes, he's calling you righteous. He's giving you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But what he's saying is this. This is what he's saying. Now you will begin a lifetime of sanctification. You will begin understanding what this great sacrifice was that he gave you. And every day of your life and every moment of your life when you, get, you travel and you pray and you thank God for the gift that he's given you, being justified, you will understand that you sanctify yourself. And you, you, you continue to ask God to expose your weaknesses and, and expose your sins. And this process of justification, 
This effectively, that word was the word that launched the Protestant Reformation. You realize that. That word launched the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther recognized in 1500. It had nothing to do with works. It had nothing to do with buying indulgences. It had nothing to do with all of those issues that the formal church at that time had declared. All it meant was you are justified in an instant, engrafted onto the body of God, in the body of our Lord Jesus. And the importance of then, again, is, and you want to go back? You want to go back to the law? You want to go back to the law where not one person lived to the law? No person was saved by the law? The law was designed to show you how, how sinful you were, how far you were from the mark, how the holiness of God next to you was like filthy rags next to a gleaming tower. That's what the law was designed to. But you want to go back and embrace that? The point is you cannot mix the law and grace. The gospel doesn't work that way. The gospel of Jesus Christ works one way. It is by grace, by faith, we are justified through Jesus. We are engrafted onto the body. That's the, that is the gift. That is the gospel. That plus nothing else is salvation. Zero. Is that clear? Amen. Yes. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> because you know what? If we don't stand for that, we stand for nothing. You might as well get up and walk out. Honestly, we stand for nothing. But if we stand for that, we stand for everything. There's nothing else that's more important than understanding this doctrine and seeing how important this was. Why was Paul calling Peter out? You understand now what, how the importance of this Jerusalem council was all about? That's why I'm juxtaposing Galatians with Jerusalem council. I'm not just going into the Jerusalem council. I'm juxtaposing what happened afterwards, because it really raises the importance of it. And continuing on. So too we have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. This isn't Brother John speaking to you. This isn't me. This is Paul. No one justified by the law. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Through the law, I died to the law that I might live through Jesus Christ. Boy, this is, this is powerful. Now, you can imagine him calling Peter out and calling Barnabas out. I mean, it took a tremendous amount of courage to do this. And we don't see a response in Galatians from Peter. But if you read the epistles of Peter, you will see that he fully endorses, fully endorses uh, this doctrine. And so as we put it all together, what does this mean? What does this all mean? What did the decision accomplish? What, was the, what did the judgment of the Jerusalem Council do? Well, it did a couple of things. First of all, it strengthened the unity of the church. It kept it from splitting apart into two factions, the law faction 
and the grace faction, because that's what would have happened. It would have been a Jewish group and a Gentile group. We would have had two, ch two churches. It allowed the church to present a unified witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost Jews. It would not have had a, a unified witness otherwise. And if, if Gentiles abused the freedom that they had and ate meat containing blood, it would offend Jews who would be part of the church and again would cause the splintering to take place. This decision brought rejoicing and blessing in the Antioch church. And Paul would read this letter that James wrote. He would read it throughout the world, whatever he traveled. What about the decision of Peter? What did that do when he got up there and he refused to align himself with the Gentiles when his brethren from Jerusalem came? What, what was the danger in that? Well, there are two tragedies there. Number one, it made Peter a hypocrite. You never want to be a hypocrite if you want to be a witness to Jesus. You don't want them to say, well, he, will, you know, he talks a good talk, but the walk isn't there. I don't see the fruit. It's one of the things you want to see in somebody's life if they're a Christian. Where is the fruit? Where is the fruit? And when you're a hypocrite, I'm sorry to say there's not a lot of fruit. Secondly, he led others astray. It wasn't that he himself went wrong, but his decision when he's a leader leads others. And you folks are leaders. You may not say to me, oh, Brother John, I'm not, I don't consider myself a leader. Yes, you are. You are spiritual leaders. Amen. God's called you to be in this church. You're here. You are hearing the word of God preached like not a lot of other people here in the world. Why do you think you're so blessed? You think it's to come out here and have entertainment? Let me tell you something. There's a higher call on your life. You're being called to minister the word to the world. And that means watch your walk. Watch your walk. Ask God to give you the grace in your walk. Ask God to give you the grace in your speech. Ask God to give you the grace in your conduct. And I'm preaching to myself. I'm preaching to myself. Okay? I mean, think about this, how you can bring others down to destruction. Okay? And how this disobedience would be a tremendous influence on others. So not only did Barnabas go down, but other Jews in the church went down as well. And so this, this poignant moment in the life of the church cannot be, cannot be overemphasized. And now they, too, have warts. Brother Paul, Brother Paul, God used you mightily. God used you mightily. How are you doing, brother? Turn to verse 36, chapter 15, Acts. After the Jerusalem council was over, Paul and Barnabas were rejoicing. They went back to the Antioch church. The church was aglow, celebrating this great decision. The world would be changed. Gentiles throughout the world would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what happened next? Well, verse 36, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, that's John Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him 
because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers, to the grace of the work of the Lord. Whoa, Brother John, what's going on here? What is going on? Paul, you giant, you who understand the doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ like few men ever will on the face of the earth, you who have written all these epistles, you who've written pretty much half of the New Testament, you have given the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ the flesh. You, you who were on a trash heap in Tarsus for 10 years, cut off from the church, cut off from the church. They didn't want to have anything to do with you. You were too hot to handle. Brother Barnabas went up there, went there, found you. Your pal Barnabas, who stuck up for you, brought you back, brought you back. And now, because some teenager... Some young teenager on your first missionary trip bailed out because he was homesick, because he wanted to go home, and you, in Christian love, say, that's it, he's out, I'm not traveling with him, you bar him? Brother, where is your love? And it was such a brutal disagreement such a brutal disagreement that they split up. Can you imagine? Do you think this was viewed positively by the church? Of course not. Again, your walk. Somebody said to me this morning, yes, brother, but Paul still remained true to the doctrine. Yes, he remained true to the doctrine. And I'm telling you this not from the point of criticizing. This is not a criticism. But what I'm saying is, do you see even now the giants, they too have warts. And here it is, amidst all this blessing, as he articulates this doctrine to the highest degree, can call out Peter for his conduct, yet he himself refuses to go on a trip because a teenage boy got homesick and bailed out on the first trip. Oh, God, where is our love? Where is our love? So I ask you that. That's the question you have to ask yourself today. I mean, that's really the point of this lesson at the end of the day. You understand the doctrine. You understand what the doctrine's about. But now let's talk about practical application. How is your walk? Are you walking the walk? You're talking the talk good. You got it. You memorized the Bible verses. You're going to church. That's good. You're going to faith. That's good. How's the walk? How's the walk? Ask him. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, you've touched our hearts. I thank you for your word, Lord. I ask that it be multiplied in our hearts, that each of us, Lord, each of us, in our own moment of quiet, speak to you, Lord, and ask you to search our hearts. And that to the extent that there is any iniquity within it, Lord, clean it out. Help us, Lord, because we all want to serve you. We all want to be your ministers. We want to go out and change the world. And we know, Lord, in order to change the world, we have to first change ourselves. And so we ask you, God, to continue to put the spotlight of the Holy Spirit on our lives. I ask you to continue to bless all these dear people. Protect them in every way, Lord. Give them the truest, most sincere blessings of their heart. Watch over them and bring them back safely again next week. We put all these things 
In Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless.